If you were to look at the Mount Rushmore of Spider-Man comics, you would see the faces of Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and John Romita Sr. These three men, their unique talents combined, brought to life one of the most enduring fictional representations of a modern hero, the amazing Spider-Man. For years, their unique blend of humor, pathos, heroics, and wheat cakes would be copied, adapted, and twisted in the pages of The Amazing Spider-Man. Classics like The Night Gwen Stacy Died would serve to turn the whole industry of superhero comics on their head. But eventually, the formula, like anything else, had become just a little bit less special. As enjoyable as Spider-Man comics had always been, there was just something missing from the pages of the comic to make it sing, you know, the way it used to. The way it used to, but then, Dan, something changed. From the pages of Spectacular Spider-Man, a new talent emerged, someone with a firm grasp on what made Spider-Man so beloved in the first place, but with a unique take all of his own. And that was writer Roger Stern. Stern's approach to the book found a way to repackage nostalgia like it was brand new and rejuvenated the soul of Spider-Man. His partner in crime, John Romita Jr., a.k.a. J.R.J.R., completed the perfect creative pairing. Echoing the work of his father while slowly establishing his own artistic voice, the amazing Spider-Man was back! I, I always have to say it like that when, when it comes to Spider-Man being back, right, Dan? Uh, together, they crafted a fan-favorite run that has stood the test of time. Join us this season on The Amazing Spider-Talk as we discover what made this era of comics so special, or as we are calling it, sternly worded. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And if that includes Monica Rambeau, they really count from this I, you, you, you beat me to the punch, Dan. I was going to say, well, there is a pretty big counting annual in this season that we'll be talking about. Anyway, I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio. I, too, know, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, including that Monica Rambeau annual, which is like inflated in value over the last few months. Thanks, WandaVision. But that annual still doesn't count, in my opinion. I'm sorry. I don't care what you're paying for it on eBay right now. You're overpaying for it because it doesn't count. <laughs> Why are you paying that much for a comic that doesn't count? Just because she's on TV? Anyway. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this first episode of Season 5 of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app, Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, 
and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. I mean, it's always the perfect time, but especially now because it's a season premiere. Yeah, absolutely. And in this season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we're going to visit the era of Roger Stern and J.R.J.R., taking a look at, I think, Mark, your and my favorite run of the book ever. It was really, really awesome. With the end of Jenny O'Neill's run on Amazing came these new two new pairs of creators in the Spider-Man books that I dare say would change the title forever. Readers of Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man already got a sneak preview of Spider-Man's future in the hands of Roger Stern, and here we're going to dive deep head-on into it. Absolutely. So Roger Stern, who we said in the introduction, he had wrote and plotted 16 issues of Spectacular Spider-Man that quickly earned him the top spot on the Spidey books. In fact, it was editor, Spider editor Tom DeFalco who offered him the role. And it was like he was on the he was on the big time. You know, so we're going to be uh, talking about this run, which is mostly available on Marvel Unlimited. Uh, and for the most part, we're going to be covering Amazing Spider-Man issues number 224 to 227. There's a little break. And then 229 to 250. And annuals 15 and 16. And when we say cover, we mean... I mean, we're going to be... We're talking kind of generally about this era in, in terms of looking at the, the, the quirks and, and frankly, the, the, the greatness of Roger Stern and what made this run so ballyhooed. I mean, we're going to be getting into the weeds on some of these, these issues more specifically as the season goes along. But... That's where we're going to be in terms of the broad overview of this episode. 224 to 227, 229 to 250, and annuals 15 and 16. And don't forget to hang around after the show where Mark and I will be taking your questions before we move to a Patreon-exclusive discussion of the brand new Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 61. But Mark, let's talk about the Roger Stern run. We've been waiting like a decade to really cover <laughs> this in this level of detail. And here it is. It's finally arrived. Mark, you're our kind of like historian here of the two of us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Roger Stern? I know we did that whole episode on his spectacular run, you know, and I don't think he changed much as a person between then and now. And I, I dare say, I think some of these early amazing issues feel like they might have been leftover spectacular scripts. Tell us a little bit about like Roger Stern getting this book and and and, and kind of some of the history of it. As we alluded to uh, in our season finale last year, when Stern was writing Spectacular, I mean, he he loved it. He, he loved doing it. He loved Spider-Man. He was always a fan. You know, Spectacular, he, he, he kind of felt it was a it was a tryout, you know, and, and what were you trying out for? You're trying not to write Amazing. Amazing Spider-Man was the flagship book. It was the big time, you know, as Dan Slott would later call it uh, <laughs> when he started writing full time on the book. Stern even referred to Spectacular as kind of like this, the, the stepchild of, of, of the Spider-Man family. And, you know, that's something against Spectacular. But even even with your, your sense, Dan, which I think is a correct sense that some of these early stories were kind of holdovers, coming on to the main book opened up a whole new level of storytelling for Stern. He, you know, he, he didn't have to, I think, wade into the obscure anymore. Uh, you know, he was able to just tell the stories the way he wanted to tell them. And he, in his own way, even though he 
kind of leaned back and there was in lots of this run is very nostalgic. I mean, there are certain stamps that, of, that were distinctively his own that he put on this book. Our good friend the, of the show, the legendary Tom DeFalco, he was editing the Spider books at the time when you know they basically had the group editors that you know Danny Figueroa had went into last season. And he asked him to join ASM in 1981. Stern basically was like, all right, this is it. This is my chance. I'm in the prime time now. But, and, but he didn't hesitate. You know, we've, we've talked to various creators over the years about like that, that step up to amazing and their reactions to it. And Stern has said in various interviews over the years that he, he felt ready because he always felt he had a deep understanding of the character. He was a very active scripter and collaborator uh, with his artists. He would actually like, you know, kind of art direct, it sounds like, his artists in terms of telling them, you know, what he felt Spider-Man, especially out of costume, what, what he should look like and how he should be reacting. So like, this is somebody, you know, we, we've, we've heard this from Tom DeFalco. We've heard this from JMD. We've heard this from a bunch of creators over the years. This is just somebody who really put himself inside the head of Peter Parker and frankly, it, the, the stories show, and we'll, and we'll get into that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about this upgrade from spectacular to amazing, because I think it's become something of a, maybe cliche isn't the right word, maybe an expectation that like people who are uh, working uh, you know, on the B titles are the next ones in line to get bumped up to the A book. But really, there haven't been many creators who, who did that. I mean, it might just be that like, Bill Mantlo really kind of owned Spectacular for a long time there. And, uh, you know, I guess there were a lot of creators that bounced off and on. You know, Roger Stern to me is like one of the few major examples of someone that really owned that B title and then found themselves elevated to Amazing Spider-Man. You know, sometimes you get people that would bounce back and forth like JMD, but like Stern is kind of like the kind of premier example of graduating from Spectacular to Amazing. It's worth noting that when he was on Spectacular, I mean, yes, the stories weren't as high profile and he wasn't able to use the high profile characters like the big villains all that much. Uh, not that he really used those villains all that much when he was on Amazing, but we'll, we'll get into what he did with that in that regard. You know, and obviously the artists, it was kind of a rotating shift. I mean, you know, he had Mike Zach, Mike Zach on a few issues and Marie Severin. I mean, like, you know, it, it kind of jumped around. His run, frankly, is also one of the few where you kind of saw a through line of his, of his stories. Like he, he told a very specific kind of story. You know, there are certain characters and, and tropes, I guess you would say, that he brought into his book and that he kind of kept coming back to over and over again on Spectacular. And, and like in that regard, it, it truly was a tryout. Like this wasn't like, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess Mantlo did it to some degree. I don't want to, I don't want to completely dismiss it. It's not like these other writers didn't tell arcs or stories, but like it, it, you kind of just felt like if you look at other runs on Spectacular, you know, you'd have an arc, that be connected by a couple of issues, but like the book as a whole over the span of a year or two didn't really connect to itself. It just kind of went from one story to the next because it was a very transient book and Stern, whether he wanted to be in it for the long haul or he saw it as, as a, as a platform, he, 
he and, and we talked we talked about this last season too. I mean, like he he clearly had an idea of how he wanted to tell a long form Spider Man story. Am I is this making sense to you, Dan? Oh, absolutely. Uh, e- even though I think if there's a, any critique, and it's not really a critique of him. Uh, of his run is that that long form story feels unfinished. So many of the elements he introduces are really like giant changes for the book that have big ramifications that spill over into the next run, but didn't really get to see full fulfillment in Stern's run. And I think we're going to talk about like how we remember Stern's run and how it is beloved by fans later this episode. But it always has been curious to me because it is a fairly short run and yet it still retains this kind of godlike status amongst amongst fans. You know, you were mentioning that he had a real kind of understanding of the character, even including the art. And I think we can't talk about Stern's run without talking briefly about John Romita Jr. or JRJR and his contributions. Because how how could you talk about this work without talking about the artist for one, but particularly this artist? And and it's so funny too because you know, this was literally the infancy of John Romita Jr.'s career. And, you know, at this point in time, you know, frankly, he kind of was getting hit with some critics with the, the with the nepotism tag just because of what a legend his father was. And I think if you if you if you hear it from from Romita, like, you know, that kind of probably took a ding on his confidence at the time, because like, you know, compared that to the work he would later do with JMS or even even the stuff he did with like Howard Mackey on on Peter Parker Spider-Man and in the 90s and stuff like that I mean you know like he you know by that point Ramita was I think more fully formed as an artist and as a storyteller and and I think he would even agree with this was was a better visual storyteller yet he he still has a stamp on this run even if maybe he doesn't He's not as proud as of it as he is his later work, and I think that's 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 key too. And I, and, I, and you know when you read interviews with Stern, I mean Stern liked working with J.R. J.R. a lot too, even though Stern seemed to have a very specific idea of what he wanted. Every you know everything just so. I mean, for maybe maybe Stern appreciated the fact that because J.R. J.R. was so young, he can kind of push him in a certain direction. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I wonder how someone like Stern would have worked with either a McFarlane or an, or an Eric Larson. It may not have gone as well. <laughs> well, it's curious. I mean, there's always this ongoing debate about parsing the work between an artist and the writer and what is, you know, whose contribution. But I think, you know, the two of these, these two working together, there was, you know, for some of the rough panels, like uh, you could probably make fun of JRJR's character's foreheads being extra big in some instances, there's a real intimacy to the storytelling that I think is unique to this run. I think it's really embracing some of the ideas that would become more popular in other 80s comics of the time, like uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil and stuff. And you see this kind of story pacing and new approach to visual storytelling within the book, doing a lot of like punch outs and, or, I mean, knockouts and and things like that and, and embracing new color theory and I think utilizing the close up a lot more within these books. And I, I just feel like the I guess we could say it's cinematic, even though it's the wrong form. But there was a, a little bit more to the the layouts and how action and, and characters were, were uh, showcased on the page and freer layouts and. You know, whether that's Stern or JRJR, and I tend to think it's probably more JRJR, 
because Stern is, you know, has, has been around had been around longer than JRJR had at the time. the The book felt like it's subtle, but there's a difference, and and I think it's definitely noticeable within the pages. You know, in in addition to the art form kind of being this 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 fresh, or I should say, the visual style being this fresher thing. You know, like, yes, Roger liked writing Peter a lot. But like the other thing to keep in mind about like this era and this book was, I mean, really reinvigorated the supporting cast. I mean, like suddenly, certainly when compared to Stern's immediate predecessor on the book, which was uh, Denny O'Neill, there were stories where Aunt May was was very critical. I mean, they you know, they had introduced Nathan Lebensky as her boyfriend and that that created a certain level of drama jonah and robbie and the bugle were front and center there's a whole issue of jonah having like a fantasy and he's in his what, what did I, I refer to it once on the uh website it was he was in the the sweatsuit mafia his uh, gold sweatsuit <laughs> while not immediately but getting towards the second half of stern and jrjr's run mary jane came back on this book the supporting cast was very central to this book in a way it had not been in quite some time. I mean, you know, other predecessors had kind of taken characters off the table and, you know, maybe tried to introduce new ones, but really didn't didn't do much with them. And, and Stern kind of went back to the well, the classics that Stan Lee had first came up with. But the other thing that and, and this will this is to me always will be a defining thing of Stern's run and we'll get into it a whole episode because you know we we always have to do an episode per season around one of these topics but the villain so outside of the vulture who was kind of an underutilized spider-man villain anyway prior to this run stern avoided using the classic rogues he he decided no i don't want to tell a doc ock story i don't need electro i don't need to do an Osborne's through line the way others had done. We didn't need a Green Goblin for. There is a Goblin, but it's it's a completely different Goblin character. And other villains came from like the Avengers. They they came from all sorts of places. The Defenders. We had the you know, and it's just very fa- very fascinating that he was able to tell distinctively. Spider-Man stories in terms of the certain characteristics and traits of the character that have gone on to define him and frankly that we lean back on to say this is a definitive Spider-Man story because it captures this essence of these traits and it's not a Spider-Man versus Doc Ock story or a Spider-Man versus uh, you know the Sandman or any of that you know what I mean like that's it's it just show it shows you how much he understood the character and how he could still tell distinctive spider-man stories without having to lean on the villain cast but like but in terms of the supporting cast those were the ogs and i always found that little needle that he threaded to be quite interesting i always found it interesting that the kind of like two most celebrated modern or critically celebrated modern spider-man runs are both runs that really don't feature his villains or his, his regular cast of villains and you know that maybe there's something something to that yeah, it's funny. It's the only time that like Doctor Octopus was relegated to a B book. Right? He he was all throughout spectacular. Yeah, that's great. But I mean, yeah, I I tend to think that the kind of like other people's villains are fun and if not forgettable. But who could forget, you know, his greatest 
creation, or at least I think in your and my eyes, Roger Stern's greatest creation and the new stuff that he brought to the book. And to me, that's the hobgoblin. I mean, how could you forget him? If only he got to uncover his identity the way he wanted to, and then it would have just saved <laughs> me years worth of, of, of misery and boring our audience with hunting for the story behind the story, right? I mean, like, come on. But no, I mean, obviously the hobgoblin, and, and, and it's so funny, like, it is still a goblin story, but it, it was done in a very unique way, kind of capturing the elements that you had talked about earlier, Dan, in terms of like the cinematic qualities and, 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 and all that. I mean, it was it, it really felt kind of fresh and, and edgy, for lack of a better word, despite the fact that it was just another goblin story. Yeah, I would say that's definitely his greatest creation. I mean, other creations in terms of characters that he brought back, I mean, well, uh, that he that he introduced to the world. I mean, there's the <laughs> this is a bit of a cheat, but it's it's certainly something that gets referenced a lot. There's the kid who collects Spider-Man, you know, the kid himself. Uh, now the now his name is escaping me because Tim, I'm Tim an idiot. Harrison. Thank you, Dan. I knew you would have it right ready to go. <laughs> Tim Harrison. The other creation that that Stern gets credit for, although Tom DeFalco had a role in it and Jim Shooter had a whole uh, role in it, was the the black suit. Apparently, Stern was the one who kind of, as he was leaving the book, said, the suit should be alive. That's, a, you know, he gets he gets credit for that. I mean, he didn't he didn't come up with an alien symbiote that would become Venom. But, you know, that the suit should be alive was enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, that, got you, that got you part of there. And then, uh, as we alluded to in our, our, our intro, the other big character creation, and, and this was something that, because Stern was also, keep in mind, writing the Avengers at this time. And, and this Avengers run is, uh, for Flack, is considered one of the great Avengers runs. It's just this, you know, totally boggles your mind that, you know, someone could be writing both Spider-Man and the Avengers and be basically doing, like, modern greatness on both. Uh, but that's Captain Marvel 2, Monica Rambeau. At the time, maybe not as big of a deal, but certainly after the Captain Marvel movie a couple years ago and now WandaVision, that this is this is a, a sought-after character and one that's probably going to get a lot of play in the MCU going forward. So congratulations, uh, Roger Stern. You just, you just made yourself some money with that one. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not, unfortunately. Or maybe not. That's a good point. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't speak so soon. <laughs> Yeah, well, hey, you know, those that's a great little overview of Roger Stern. Let's talk about what we're calling Sternisms. Like, what are the things that kind of define Roger Stern and his run? Could we pick out a Roger Stern comic if it was handed to us off the rack? What are some of the things we'd be looking for to distinguish it? I look at it from the big picture. It's like, what makes it a Roger Stern comic? And would I be able to pick it out? And I would probably be able to because it's like, it's basically like less hokey schmaltzy Stanley. <laughs> you know I mean? like it, it, and that's nothing against the great Stanley, but I mean, frankly, like, you know, once Ditko had left the book, I think Stan kind of leaned a little too much into the schmaltz sometimes, <laughs> whereas uh, Stern was kind of kind of nerdy and fun and, and, and hokey, but like th there was a little bit more substance and, and I don't want to say intelligence because that's insulting, but you know what I mean? There was, there was a little, it was a little more depth to 
his characters and his stories and maybe some of Stan's stories towards the end of his run on the book in the in the 60s and 70s there. But it like, didn't, his yeah, writing the, didn't quite have the pop that Stan Lee's writing has. There's not the alliterative words or the clever turns of phrases. It's very economical writing. You know, it's it's emotion first and, uh, you know, logic allowing the art to speak a little bit more than I think Stan ever did. I mean, it was a different era and, and seeing panels drowned in, in balloons, you know, can happen in Stern's run, but I, I think he was a, like a finer craftsman, if you will. It wasn't just the fact that he liked to be inside Peter's head, but it was also how he was inside Peter's head. Like there was like this kind of balance of Peter's love, hate, relationship with spider-man and his you know and basically the fact that he was spider-man that frankly i don't think anyone but stan lee has has ever played with with great lengths i mean you know yes we we there there are certain you know there are certain peter parker isms you know his ability to kind of balance his life and you know the 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 curse of spider-man is sam raimi kind of made it out to be in his movies in in the 2000s but this this was different because it's like you know the peter peter maybe didn't love the fact that he was spider-man because of the burdens and the responsibility that came with it and maybe it was because stern himself was in awe of the character but like they were oh they were this whole run has so many moments where Peter is like mid action and he's kind of stopping and saying to himself, that's right. I can do this because I'm Spider-Man. I have the proportionate <laughs> strength and speed of a spider. I, I, I am blessed that these things, I mean, there's a, in one of his fights with uh, Hyde, Mr. Hyde and Cobra, he even says, it's times like this. I feel blessed. I was bitten by that little radioactive spider. And it's like, it's that kind of like appreciation and awe and and self con, you know congratulatory attitude <laughs> that you know is that kind of plays with the Stanley schmaltzy you know salesmanship of the character. Stern did it because he truly appreciated who this character was and and again like understood it like you know like Spider-Man was not a pushover like he he had these abilities and these powers and he was extraordinary because of them. One of the things I also like about the run is that he really is sure to emphasize the power of Spider-Man. I mean, this is a, a character that can lift tons of weight over his head, uh, depending on who you're, whose version of the character you're, you're reading. And I feel like Stern was like the first one in a while to really embrace the pure raw power that Spider-Man has. I mean, even if he put him up against an unstoppable foe like the Juggernaut, you still always had a sense of uh, Spider-Man's innate strength. The time of pulling his punches was kind of in the in the past. And, and I always loved that because I feel like Spider-Man's strength oscillates so wildly where he has trouble fighting one dude that's, you know, punching him in one instant. In another instant, he's lifting thousands of pounds of metal off of his head. And I feel like Stern operated towards the kind of like stronger end of that spectrum and used kind of stories like the one against Tarantula to really emphasize that like, hey, he really shouldn't have trouble fighting a guy like Tarantula. Yeah, I mean, even in, you know, the the, the very famous Juggernaut story, I mean, yes, Ju Juggernaut overwhelms him, but that's because, you know, Juggernaut is basically being portrayed in the story as one of the, you know, most powerful villains in the Marvel universe. And, 
you know, like, you know, I think part of what adds to and we'll we'll obviously as the season goes along get into the specifics of the story. But, you know, part of what adds to the drama of it is the fact that, you know, it's not like Spider-Man is is throwing like cotton balls at, at Juggernaut trying to stop him. I mean, like he's he's doing <laughs> the, he's doing the heavy lifting here and it's not it's not making a dent. That's the point. It's like, you know, like he's throwing his full strength out there and it's impressive and yet it's still not enough. And, and, you know, like in the, in the Cobra Hyde story that I had mentioned a few minutes ago, I mean, like Mr. Hyde is not a pushover either. And Spider-Man is kind of having this moment where he's like, that's right. I don't have to pull my punches here. And then once he unloads, he, he, he does knock Hyde out pretty, pretty, I don't want to say easily, but like, you know, he, he, he takes care of it. But like, this is a guy that, you know, has held his own against members of the Avengers and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, like, you know, when Spider-Man fully uncorks, he can, he can do some real damage here. And that's, you know, that's kind of the point of the character. He's a superhero. Like he should be able to do some, it's, it's not, I mean, that's always been the kind of the allure of Spider-Man. It's not just speed and agility. I mean, he's, he's a powerhouse too. Yeah, and and he's like good at his job too. He's not like the kind of man child that you know some writers like to uh, you know approach Peter as. Although Peter also is a deeply flawed person. There are a number of turns in this run, like him leaving grad school, that show him kind of outclassed by his life situations. And that's another big part of of this story. I think like we talked about Denny O'Neill's run. I feel like he didn't really understand the strength of Spider Man. But he also really didn't understand the supporting cast and how that work-life balance is such a big part of the character. And for Stern, I think, you know, as much as Stan uh, understood that, like, it was really Peter Parker's story that we were reading in the pages of this book. You know, yes, there some things had changed in terms of this, you know, members of the supporting cast in terms of who was there and who was around. But like, frankly similar to the whole situation to the villains, like that didn't necessarily matter in terms of what Stern was trying to get across in his narrative. I mean, like he had used like the Empire State University teaching grad work as a, as a really clever way to show how Peter struggled with interpersonal relationships. I mean, you know, basically he's just as smart and capable of all these other grad students that he was working alongside, but like, you know, they, they, frankly, they don't respect him because he's either not there or he's cutting out early or he, you know, <laughs> poor Deb Whitman is just giving him the <laughs> ice stare because, you know, she, she, you know, he just blew her off for dates too many times during the Denny O'Neill run. So I guess now it's like time to pull the plug on that. There's a moment in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 232 where Peter misses his own surprise party at Empire State. <laughs> you would also see these interpersonal relationships and, and with the classic supporting cast. I mean, you know, obviously Aunt May comes along, but that uh, comes to mind. But frankly, you know, even Aunt May had the unique wrinkle of, of Nathan Lubetsky. And, you know, granted, you know, I think Tom DeFalco and, and Ron Friends I would tell the ultimate story with, Peter and his responsibility and, uh, you know, as it related to Nathan. But, you know, having this new character be so close to someone Peter loves so much created a new sense of drama and, and tension 
Peter and Spider-Man and, and how it relates to these characters. I mean, like, you know, one breath, it's like, oh, you know, now that May's found somebody, I don't have to worry as much from her. But like, you know, it's he's he's worrying for two you know it's like it, it, it's never clean for peter it can't it just can't be that's that's the point yeah you know? <laughs> and i think this run actually like marks a real change for aunt may feel like around issue 200 with the burglar and the old home and her being kidnapped and all that stuff is when she kind of like you know if there's a pendulum in terms of mj or aunt may's portrayal and her age and how frail she is i think 200 is probably like a hard swing one way on the pendulum towards Aunt May being kind of like her most frail or, or kind of the, the peak of her kind of uh, being portrayed in this particular way, whether it's the kind of like absent-minded, confused woman that's marrying Doc Ock or someone truly on death's door. But here, you know, Stern takes her from being in this old folks home to, you know, positioning her to move back to Forest Hills to open her own home to care for, uh, you know, other senior citizens. And it gives her a little more agency and a little more strength as a character of someone who's doing her own thing and not just waiting for Peter to call her. And I think you start seeing that character be kind of slowly start to become the kind of more independent Aunt May that we're used to seeing in the comics today, where she, you know, is, I don't know, like her early 60s and is running feast and, doing all these things. I don't think you get that Aunt May without someone starting to kind of like turn the clock back just a little bit on Aunt May's bizarre, whatever you want to call it, aging schedule that she <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of playing off this, you know, the, the interpersonal relationship and, and Peter, how, how people saw Peter, but also how people saw Spider-Man in this run? Because I think that was that was a key thing that Stern had brought back. It's 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 funny, you know, like one of the big status quo shifts when Marv Wolfman took over the book was he absolves Peter from the the murder of Norman Osborne. You know, that was kind of like this thing hanging over his head. In doing so, we kind of got away from the one of the core attributes of Spider-Man that goes all the way back to uh, the the very first issue of Amazing Spider-Man, which is the fact that the public didn't trust Spider-Man and didn't like Spider-Man and, and Stern really leaned into that. I mean, you know, part of that was, was bringing back the bugle in a, in a big way and JJ and Robbie, you could tell Stern loved writing <laughs> Jonah. I mean, who doesn't, but I mean, he, he, in a way, in a way that you, we, we hadn't seen probably since again, the, the Stan Lee era, you know, there were like even these little nuances. Like I, 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 I love, in the issue with the fool killer and, and, you know, let it be said, and we'll, we'll do this in our villains episode, but you know, you look at a character like the fool killer and it's like, what does he do? He, he kills fools. And you're kind of like, how, how can you tell a competent story out of that concept? And yet he did. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like, this is a, this is a fun story. And this guy comes across as a big threat here. Spider-Man is fighting the fool killer and in, inside Empire State and he like messes up this like random professor's office and afterwards like the the the, the person that basically Spider-Man saves he's like yeah thanks for messing up my office you you menace and it's like you know again like I mean this is the thing it's it's it, it, you didn't see this a lot in in the years 
uh, immediately preceding when Stern came back on the book. But like Stan, Stan would do this all the time and Jerry Conway to a lesser extent, this sense that Spider-Man and Peter just couldn't win, you know, like they could maybe win the fight, but there would always be a cost, you know, like there, it, 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 it didn't always have to be the life of his uncle, but like something would always be, he could never be 100% up, you know, something had to come down. <laughs> it, it, it's just, there was no other way to do it. So in this case, it was just his reputation. Like he could save this guy and save his life and it, and it still wasn't enough or like, you know, during a fight where Lance Bannon is there shooting for the Daily Bugle. Now, Lance Bannon was kind of like the new nemesis for Peter Parker at the Bugle. The curmudge, the, the, the crooked photographer or the, you know, I shouldn't say crooked, but he, he just, you know, he was always out to kind of one up Peter. Right. He's the um, rival photographer. The rival. Thank you. Spider-Man during the fight, like he wrecks Lance's camera. And of course, like Lance is like, you bum. You ruined my camera, you know, like it's like no one has respect for this character, despite the fact that, as we earlier mentioned, he's, you know, extraordinarily powerful. He, he, he does he does good. He saves the day, but it, it will not earn him respect because the, the, the public just does not like Spider-Man. And that is, I think, something that writers struggle to capture in this comic over the years, because, frankly, it's like. Who wants to write a superhero who nobody likes? But that's kind of key for Spider-Man, right? <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that the same was true for Peter because, you know, I think in terms of like dumping on Peter, this run has it in spades. My my favorite of which being the reintroduction of Mary Jane where, you know, we've got Peter kissing another woman, Amy, as MJ turns the key and opens the door in the same fashion as she introduced herself all the way back in issue 42. And the site is very different. And, you know, it's, it's not Peter's fault in it in any regard, but there are so many moments where Peter just cannot catch a break in this run. I don't know what it is about us that we love watching our heroes and, 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 and our non-costumed heroes get beat up on so much. You know, it, it is delightful <laughs> to read in the pages of these books. It's that old relatability factor. I think that, frankly, that's just how we all feel about life sometimes. It's very rarely all up for us, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, you've mentioned that, obviously, and we're going to do a whole episode on the villains of this run like we always do each season. But, you know, one of the things over the years that you, know, you kind of notice when you cover books like these or read through books like these is when another person's villain comes in or another rogue from another you know, uh, villain, uh, like, you know, our, our, our hero comes into a, a book like Amazing Spider-Man. The problem can often be that the hero, like, adapts to meet the villain, not the other way around. And so you have, like, books that just don't feel like Spider-Man books. Or, you know, he's fighting, I don't know, Stiltman is okay. But, you know, I, I can think of a, a number of, I guess, like the Fire Lord issue, even though I quite like that issue. I think that still feels like a Spider-Man issue. I, I guess I'm having a hard time pulling one out of my uh, back pocket right now. But well, I mean, I hate to dump, keep dumping on it, but like the entire Denny O'Neill run, frankly, I mean, it was just like you know, like there were these predicaments. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a specific villain, but it was filled with these predicaments and 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 dramatic moments for Spider-Man that just didn't, like you said, they didn't feel like 
they were written to meet Spider-Man. It was like Spider-Man was being written, you know, it's like, oh, he's got to he's got to solve this caper or break himself out of jail. And it was just like, you know, this this could be any hero. It didn't you know, it wasn't being written for Spider-Man. It was being written for the scenario, not the other way around. And and is that what you're trying to say? I was, you know, yeah, more or exactly. Less? And yet when I read Stern's run, even though none of Spider-Man's rogue gallery is really featured, I mean, like there's the vulture. And, you know, if you count Willow, the Willow, the Wisp and Tarantula, but like none, there are very few A-listers. And, you know, I think there are people that would probably push back on the Vulture being an A-lister, although he's in a movie. So I'm going to count him, you know, and yet all of these stories to me, even the one with the fool killer feel like Spider-Man stories. What do you think makes that work for Stern? Like, how did he pull that off? Well, again, I think I think it came back to what you were just saying at the start of that of this segment, which was that Stern, whoever Stern was using, he 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 took the scenario and was like, how can I apply this to Spider-Man? You know, like, what is what do we you know, I don't want to just use some random Avengers guy or X-Men guy because they're cool characters. I I, I need them to fit into Spider-Man's universe. And actually, you know, his most famous non-Spider-Man villain story of all time, arguably, is, of course, nothing. no one can stop the juggernaut. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this story until we're sick of it, frankly, this season, because, <laughs> you know, as I said to Tom Brevoort, it's probably my favorite Spider-Man story. But interestingly enough, in, in Roger Stern's interview to, in, to Tom DeFalco in a great book of interviews that DeFalco put out years ago, highly recommended, by the way, he actually said that the, the Juggernaut story was initially, in his mind, conceived as a Doc Ock story. And he opted against it because he was like, eh, I, you know, Doc Ock's played out. I want to use somebody different. But he's like, he wanted, to, you know, he thought Doc Ock because he's like, I need someone who's a real powerhouse that can just basically, in his words, beat the snot out of Spider-Man so much that he would just basically put him on the brink of collapse so that the comeback moment would be, you know, truly worth it. And, you know, that was the premise. So it was like, okay, well, he wanted to push Peter or, or Spider-Man to, to the brink to, so he can mount this huge comeback. So let's find the villain that works in that scenario, not, I have Juggernaut. Let's write Spider-Man fighting Juggernaut. You know, I think he told the story, you know, with Spider-Man first in mind. And, and, you know, when you look at even some of these other ones with like Fool Killer or Cobra and Hyde, you know, like there, there's like these elements like, like his sympathy for, for, you know, the Fool Killer, like, even though this guy has this gun that he's, he's zapping people with and basically, incinerating them it's kind of horrifying <laughs> that this is villain going around doing this you know spider-man towards the end is like he's just he's sick this this, this, poor, this poor guy is sick and he needs help and i you know he, he can't help him but like he 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 feels bad and like you 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 frankly that's something that has always kind of been like a weakness of spider-man's it's this idea of like you know like Maybe his sympathy for characters like, I mean, we're talking about this right now in the Nick Spencer run. His sympathy for like Norman and Harry Osborne has kind of opened the door to all this trouble for him. But like Stern really wanted to, he told these stories, but he, need to, he needed to make sure that, that Peter's personality always shines through. 
And I feel like he did a pretty good job of integrating a lot of these villains into Peter's life in some way. I mean, Juggernaut's a, ba a bad example because Juggernaut and, and Spider-Man really have no kind of personal connection in that story. He's just a guy on a mission and Spider-Man's trying to stop him. I guess Madam Web is the kind of like personal connection in that she is a, you know, uh, she, she's the stakes uh, 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 of that issue. Um, but you're, you're right. That fool killer issue, I think it's really interesting for that, that it is a classmate of Peter's that's been seated for quite some time. That's the one story to me that feels like it was a, a hangover thread from spectacular that he wanted to wrap up, but he makes it work in the pages of amazing for whatever the difference between the titles are being that they're both 28 pages of comics or what, what have you, you know? And, and I think, you know, if he didn't, you know, uh, take other people's villains and make them great, you know, he, he had really compelling villains of his own creation, you know, obviously the, the Hobgoblin. And that was deeply personal because he's so afraid that the Hobgoblin is going to gain access to his secret identity and how that will impact him again. And he can't have a repeat of Gwen Stacy. And, you know, that's one other thing that Roger Stern is really good at. And I think we said this in our spectacular episode is that he's clearly a Spider-Man nerd. This guy knows every inch of the character's history and, but he doesn't drop it. Like you got to go check out this issue. He weaves it so expertly into like a grander tapestry of a character with history and weight behind him. And for me, the hobgoblin works as a villain because he's leveraging all of that weight that has been built up prior. And he just has a cool design and, and has a cool story. And we'll talk more about the hobgoblin. Absolutely. No, I, I, and frankly, like, and this kind of brings us into this other, like, this other big Sternism, which would kind of, frankly, follow Stern after his initial run on this book, which was, I feel like Roger Stern was second to none in answering a question that no one actually was asking about <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> because I think, you know, again, it was because of his appreciation for the character, his kind of nerdiness about the history of the character. I mean, I guess you can make a case that maybe Stan Lee was, was like this too, but uh, not Stan Lee. Well, yes, Stan Lee was like this too, but I was thinking more currently, like like Dan Slott might, you might say was kind of, kind of did this from time to time. But I, I, when you think of a lot of Stern's great, great stories, they're kind of coming in response to a question that no one really asked. Like what, like the big one, he, he loved the vulture. He loved the vulture. He felt like the vulture was this like perfect counterbalance to Spider-Man in terms of his youthfulness and his intelligence that he was going to kind of pair him off with this cunning old character. One of the things that we never got, despite the fact that the vulture was the second major villain that Spider-Man fought in his comics was an origin story and 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 Stern basically years later came up with an origin for Vulture because he just asked a question aloud which was wait a second what what happened to Adrian Toomes to make him like this like you know what it's it's not you know it's not just enough that he you know he went to the tinkerer and got and got a costume you know like it's it, like like this has to be more to it and he ends up telling the story about this, you know, this guy, he was in the, you know, an, an inventor and an entrepreneur and his partner screwed him over. And that's what made him this miserable criminal. And the same could be said for our favorite, the Hobgoblin. I mean, you know, in addition to 
uh, Stern answering his own question about who the Hobgoblin was years later. I mean, the whole premise of the Hobgoblin was like, what would happen if someone, you know, like we, we had established during the Stanley run that Norman Osborn had lairs hidden throughout the city. And Stern basically asked the question, well, what would happen if someone found one? And that's if the wrong person opened the, the wrong broom closet. You get exactly. the hobgoblin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and things like Jonah and, you know, frankly, the multiple times he did, he did things that were, you know, frankly, criminal <laughs> in his effort to subdue Spider-Man, whether it be hiring the spider slayers or the scorpion. Like he, he that became a whole storyline towards the end of Stern's run of, you know, like, well, what would happen if someone had that information about Jonah and used it to blackmail him? Like what, what, what would come from that? I mean, you know, granted, we were, I mean, you weren't even born yet. I was barely, barely alive when these stories first came out. But like, I can't imagine that there was like this, this call from fans, like, we need to know what would happen to Norman Osborn's lair. Or, or why hasn't Jonah ever gotten busted for funding the Scorpion? Stern, I think, had a legitimate curiosity and love for the character and wanted to explore these, these, these otherwise forgotten elements. And it ended up leading to some of the best stories he ever wrote. And that's, I, I think that, that really needs to be applauded. I mean, like, that's like true fandom there, you know? Like, it's true fandom meets true artistry to tell a great story. Well, I, I, what I love about it is that he treats the world like it's a real place that exists and that history has an impact on the characters without making it, like, mining too deep. And, and... You know, I think the, the the creators before then had done similarly, but I, I, I do think that a lot of these things are long simmering payoffs to how the real world, so to speak, would react to things like this. And a, a modern example of this would be the first issue of Nick Spencer's run, where a bunch of, you know, things that probably should have been addressed suddenly became consequential in some way or, or had consequences to them, whether... Whether I think Nick Spencer has followed through on that is something altogether different. But I think Roger Stern, you know, to me, this is just like him as a fan or, you know, just a a writer looking at this and saying there's, you know, these big unanswered things that need to be addressed. And why don't I come up with a brand new good story with them? I mean, speaking of J.J.'s blackmail or J.J.J.'s blackmail, I think it's one of the all time best sequences with the character that. You know, you have a character that's typically written like a buffoon and boy, Stern loved writing buffoon Jonah, but he also could write that, you know, I cover the waterfront version of Jonah, the reputable reporter who is willing to give up his job to release the truth, even if it only really is sparked by being blackmailed, which Spider-Man is quick to call him out on, (laughs) which is like, you wouldn't be this truthful if you weren't being blackmailed. But, you know, Spider-Man gives him a back door to take to get out of the situation, which is interesting for Spider-Man to kind of bail out Jonah. And Jonah doesn't take it. And I think it's one of the more noble instances of the character uh, and and very different from the moment where he's like, well, I'm not going to be the editor anymore. I'm going to be the publisher. (laughs) (laughs) What a what a what a what a sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, great. You know, I hope that was a pretty good overview for everybody of like some of the highlights of the Stern run where why don't we talk about our spider slack, Mark? 
Absolutely. Well, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I'm there all the time. Just this week, we've you know we're always talking about the new comics and old comics, but like it's been a collecting game recently. The '90s are back, and everybody is buying up comics by the truckload. It's been fun to I, I'm reengaging my collecting hat in the Slack. That's been a, a lot of fun. So if you want to join our awesome Spider-Man community, think of it like an online forum, but more fun and friendly. Just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And once you're there, be sure to let us know what you think of this new episode in the new season. We'd love to hear from you guys. All right, Mark. So to conclude this episode, I really wanted to kind of just have a general discussion with you about the Stern run. You know, we had said that the Stern run is so beloved with fans, and I think you can see the response from even from our community. People are really excited about this season. It's the one they've been waiting for the whole time, maybe because they know that you and I love it so much. But like, what is it about this run? Like, You know, there's a lot of good things about it. But again, like I said, it's really short. It doesn't feature a lot of the classic villains. But what is it that makes this run so beloved with the fans? And is that the same thing as just like the, the quality of the book, like the writing quality? A lot of it has to do. Yes. I mean, the, the writing and the art are obviously of a very high quality. But I also think something that we don't really see a lot of with many runs is the consistency of this run too. I mean, like, you know, there, there are plenty of great creators who have worked on this title who, you know, like you kind of like say, Oh, well, you know, yeah, they were great, but you know, that, that story was kind of cringe. You know what I mean? I mean, like (laughs) love Jerry Conway, but like, you know, mind worm and grizzly (laughs) or, um, you know, JMS and, you know, this sins past or <laughs> JMD and the clone saga. I mean, you know, on and on, you know, I mean, you could maybe say, oh, well, you know, some stories are better than others and that's fair. But like, there is no like dud in this run. I mean, like each, each story has qualities and merits to it, even when frankly it shouldn't like, I mean, like, again, that fool killer story comes to mind. Like that, that, that is a, that is a comic that I think in, a lesser creator's hands is totally forgettable and 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 stupid for like how we how we using this guy come on even when the um when he's repeating himself i think it's good like i think that the thunderball story that's the first part of the kid who collects is largely like a repeat of nothing can stop the juggernaut and yet it's still full of character and really fun and maybe a lot of that is JRJR, but like even when he's relying on the old faithful, reliable punch em ups, there's something charming about the way he handles the stories. There's a consistency element. And I think when you combine that with the fact that like here is a guy that is not embarrassed by his fandom and adoration for the character. And I think that 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 set that, that means something as as a fan, you know, it, as a reader, you know, like you want to, you don't want to be reading something that maybe the person writing it 
or drawing it is embarrassed to be writing or drawing or is trying to hide it in some way, you know, or is trying to like, well, you know, maybe not hide it, but like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to embrace the old way of doing things. I, I want to, you know, I have to put my edge on it. And I don't think, you know, Stern put his stamp on things, but I don't think he ever tried to put an edge on anything here. Like, I think if anything, there's a lot of re uh, reverence and respect for what came before it, you know, like he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to dismiss or, or sweep under the rug anything that had came before it. I mean, he, he actually went hunting to uncover things that maybe people weren't hunting for. And, and, and I think that's all what plays into why this run is beloved. At least it's why I love it. You know, like I, I, I never feel self-conscious reading a Roger Stern Spider-Man comic. And, and that is not always the case with others frankly. What, what's surprising to me, and maybe it shouldn't be, uh, is, and, and I guess this speaks to the quality of comic book readers. I mean, we're a unique audience, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm the first to get into a bunch of fights with a bunch of different comic readers about things or, or saying that people are reading something wrong, which I try not to say, but that this run sits so fondly in people's memories is really kind of surprising to me, not because I am surprised by like their response to the quality of it or that I don't think it's uh, a quality run. It's that the qualities of it to me are subtle, but important. And it's, it's the quiet efficiency of his stories and the economy of the storytelling that, that it's nothing is overwritten or underwritten. There's a perfect balance between the writing and the art and all the different elements of Spider-Man's life. And each one of those things is small, but it adds up and it really makes the quality that much better. I mean, you know, the Hobgoblin's a big foe, but like the, the main bulk of the Hobgoblin mystery really doesn't take place in this run. This run kind of just kicks it off. I think a lot of what people remember from the Hobgoblin mystery took place during like the DeFalco Friends run and onward because that's where the mystery really kind of like becomes everyone becomes a suspect in, in, in that run, you know, and I guess the juggernaut story is a two parter. That's really hard to forget. And is unstoppable in your memory, so to speak, but there aren't like big events or big like twists for the character in this run. There's no burglar trying to for 10 issues, find his way back into the house. There's no death of a major supporting cast character you know, in terms of like all time Spider-Man moments that here they're quieter. I mean, Juggernaut's huge, but you know, I think kid who collects is rereading it this week or I guess last week. I think it might be like, if not my favorite Spider-Man story, you know, in my top three and it's so emotionally powerful. And if you'd ask me like, what's the biggest Spider-Man moment of them all? Like I think maybe him leaving you know, and revealing his identity to Tim is one of them and it's quiet. And I think that's the big thing about Stern. And I'm so glad that it's recognized because I think it could very easily be forgotten is that sometimes it's the quiet workmanship and the craft that often goes invisible that really makes something better. And Stern to me is the master of it in Spider-Man even if the run is short, and maybe that's also the secret to the success is 
It didn't keep going. You know, it was just long enough to linger in your mind and want have you want to read more, but didn't didn't go overboard. I'm just glad that fans recognize it, whether they've been told to recognize it or not. The quality, I think, speaks for itself. Fans live to disagree with each other, Dan. And yet I think this is one of the few non-controversial runs of Spider-Man comics out there. You know, like there's not a lot. I, I, I mean, you know, we've been doing this show now for eight years. <laughs> I'm like trying to remember eight years. And I have, uh, you know, in this community, you know, I have like you, like you have kind of pushed back on some ideas over the years, but like, no, I've never, never heard someone try and be contrary about this run. And, and yeah, I mean, like you said, like, is it hive mind? It might be, but I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it, 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 there's very little not to, not to like about this. It's like you said, there's just, you know, just a lot of nuanced yet important stuff that comes through and you know yes there are no big deaths there are no big events in it but like everything that is important about it and memorable about it are are unquestionable spider-man moments you know like these are they're they're moments that capture the essence of who this character is and that is why to me it is on a pedestal. I, 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 you know, I think, you know, speaking of hive mind, I, I have to put Dicko and Lee's run over it just because it is the foundation for everything that followed. But if you gave me a, a, a universe where Dicko and Lee for some reason didn't exist, but we had this fully formed Spider-Man character <laughs> and I had to judge who did the best job with it, I would put this one at top. You know, I'm curious, you know, rereading it for this show. I mean, were there any new discoveries that you kind of had? I mean, I, I know for me, every time I reread it, it, it sits a little bit differently with me. And I guess that comes with age and with reading more comics. You know, does it, does it, I mean, you, you love it. Obviously you would place it number two. So it still fits, sits fondly in your memory, but like what kind of new things do you, do you glean from it? You know, uh, upon like rereading it. Like you, every time I read Kid Who Collects, I love that story more and what it represents. I think one of the things I really grabbed onto this time around was kind of like Peter's sympathy and empathy for other characters, even the villain. You know, like this is somebody that, you know, doesn't ever want to intentionally harm someone. And we've kind of like seen it portrayed and no one dies and the no kill code and all this kind of stuff he doesn't emote in such grandiose terms here but at the same token that point still comes across here during this run that you know like he doesn't you know he doesn't want to ever truly intentionally harm somebody you know do no harm is kind of his his one of his first mantras here so like that kind of came forward to me a bit more like the run itself any kind of new wrinkles are very subtle you know it's not like it's not like this huge discovery of oh i never realized before and now totally changes how i see the character it's it, it, i don't i don't truly ever get that from rereading these comics 
for me, my kind of, and I don't know if it's a discovery, but like the thing that stood out to me the most this time rereading it is how Peter centric this run is like how much Stern writes Peter to be the driving force of every issue of the comic, even if he's reacting to someone else's actions. And, you know, this is not meant to be a knock on more modern writers, but I, I do think that a lot of that has kind of evaporated and here, like Peter really is at the heart of every scene. I, I, you know, I can't think of many scenes, you know, I guess, except for the hobgoblin issues where we spend plenty of time with the villains and their plans. It's often Peter doing something that's interrupted, whether he's at the bugle or, uh, you know, doing things, something with his friends who are all kind of reintroduced here in classic style from, you know, and I think maybe that's what makes the hobgoblin introduction issue so special is that like we do see some of the villain stuff and it's shrouded in mystery and things like that. But even when you get scenes like Jonah and Harry going to the kind of gentleman's club to have a meeting with the hobgoblin in that great scene where ultimately it was Daniel Kingsley putting on a performance uh, with Roderick in the audience, you know, Peter is invited there and we often leave the room where Peter goes to sneak into the restroom instead of staying and, and observing that scene. Peter is, uh, is always doing something. And uh, that's what made it so exciting for me is I felt like I was reconnecting to that character who, like you said, he's kinder in, in this book. There's not that sharp edge to Peter that some people kind of play up. Uh, I think he's genuinely motivated by empathy for others in the pages of this book enough to put his life on the line. And it doesn't feel forced or like he's making a proclamation about great power and great responsibility, unless it's really necessary. He it's just who he is and he's not showboating or, or anything like that. And um, I just kind of appreciated the the character the most this time in my read through, you know, let's talk a little bit more about some of the things behind the scenes of our show. So, You know, if you find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us on the Patreon. Uh, That is our, uh, you know, way of kind of keeping the podcast going. Yeah, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. We are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, Patreon members will hear Dan in my review of Amazing Spider-Man number 61, the deb- debut of a new Spider-Man costume. Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, why not take that $3.99 that you might have spent on a new comic, or maybe you just had sitting around in your pocket, and uh, put it towards a month's subscription to support this show and start receiving our Patreon content. That way, you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week it comes out instead of waiting for it to arrive in our public podcast feed. And, hey, you might feel good about yourself helping us out. You you might. I mean, who can say no to that? Uh, Also, (laughs) if you contribute uh, $10 uh, a month, you can gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Spider-Man fighting Dr. Octopus as his friends look on, drawn by official Marvel artist Federico Vincentini in colors and inks. Plus, every episode we release, a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. 
Yeah, and I think you guys are going to love that print, those of you who are, uh, are on board with that. I just shared the rough of it with Mark, and I think it's super cool. Oh, it is choice, but, uh, my friend. Yeah, we know this though that this is a hard time for everybody, as it is for us too, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you do have the means, please join our Patreon to support our continued existence of the show. Just follow the link in the description, and thank you again to all the members who already make this show possible. But alas, Dan, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge. Plus, our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. Also, this was a lot of fun, Dan, but what's coming next on our episode? Well, Mark, I think you know what's next because we couldn't be more excited to announce it for you all. So here it goes, nothing. Next episode, we'll be joined by John Romita Jr. himself to discuss his work on Spider-Man during the Roger Stern run. So, uh, Mark, we are so excited to have him joining us, and we hope all of you will join us for this amazing interview. Mark, can you believe it? John Romita Jr. is on our show. Yeah, it was it was, it was pretty wild, but I mean, also yeah, total totally gracious and just a wonderful, wonderful interview. I mean, I'm not just saying this because it's John Romita Jr., who is an all time great, but like, frankly, Dan, he was probably one of the best interviews we ever had on the show. I would say, right? I mean, like, there's the, the, it's hard to match just the thoughtfulness and and general sense of himself and and where he where he lies in the universe in our universe that 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 he brought to the table here. Well, I hope you guys will tune in in two weeks to hear that show because I think you're really going to enjoy it. And we had a lot of fun with it. I'm still pinching myself a little bit <laughs> to, to make sure it happened. I have it recorded, so I know for a fact that it is a thing that existed. So yeah, abs- absolutely awesome. And we hope you guys will tune in for that. So also, if you are tuning in live, don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk Live this time, we'll be back soon on YouTube. So go there and subscribe and click on the bell to stay on top of all the new live recordings that we'll be doing in the future. But as always, this will remain a podcast first and foremost. That's the same as our motto, which is consistent as long as we're gonna keep doing this show. So Mark, until you're transformed into a giant tarantula, who I eventually squish in a great gory mess. What's our motto? Wow, that's a graphic image, Dan. Our motto is, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.